Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina. This is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. This week's book of the week was recommended to me by my aunt about a year ago, and I'm finally getting around to reading Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women by Kate Moore. The accompanying cocktail is called Toxic Waste. It is one and a half ounces of toxic waste infused melon liqueur, one ounce of green apple vodka, one ounce of lime juice, and a half ounce of lemon juice. So let's do this. The uh, um, Toxic Waste is a candy. I bought it on Amazon and then I just put it in a tiny bottle with melon liqueur and we're going to see how this goes. I guess the story of Radium Girls starts with radium itself, which was discovered in 1898 by Marie Curie and her husband Pierre Curie. By 1901, it was known to be toxic. All right, I mean, they, they knew it was radioactive and that this could cause health problems. Now, this did not stop a burgeoning, that is a very green liqueur, a burgeoning uh, snake oil salesman industry, basically, from running around peddling its wares and health benefits. Um, it is not healthy for you in any metric, but they still said it was, and it's... Anyways, they said it was the latest wonder drug, it was good for all the ails you, and they literally sold capsules of radium for ingestion. <laughs> And uh, the, the bitch of it is that initially uh, what would happen is, is the radium, it attaches to your bones, so it would sink in. Your bones would start producing more red blood cells trying to fight off this new attack, and so you would actually flush and look healthier. <laughs> There's a whole lot of with the story, so buckle your seatbelts. This is going to be rough. It was known for glowing in the dark because it had this luminescent effect and so it became this burgeoning new industry where they would paint uh, clock dials, watch faces, and clocks to glow in the dark so you could tell what time it was. And this became very big during World War I for the boys in the trenches, right? Because then they'd be able to tell what time it was because they'd be able to see their watch face no matter what. So <laughs> with the advent of World War I, a burgeoning new industry popped up where they would paint these watch faces. Say one ounce of green apple, one ounce of green apple. The United States Radium Company, USRC, in Orange, New Jersey, was opened up to provide these glow-in-the-dark wristwatches, which were the high demand for the boys fighting in Europe. And so they hired, as any company would, when they have a hot new product that they need to fulfill orders for. And a lot of the boys were overseas fighting, so hundreds of girls were signed on to paint these watch faces. And they were all trained in the same fashion. I'm going to do a, a demonstration here, not with radium. I'm using green cake frosting, they would have their paint. So the frosting is the paint in this case, right? They would have their brush. They would dip the brush all in the paint. But this, as you could see, pulls the bristles all out. So in order to pull the bristles back in, they now it's a fine point. Now you can paint with it, right? Paint fine lines with it. See that? Every time you paint, you have to dip lip, paint, every time, over and over again, over and over again. Keep that visual in mind because it gets really, really horrifying the more you think about it. Oh well, hold on, I need this plate for cutting my lime and my lemon. Now that visual's out of the way. How much lime do I need? I think I need one ounce of lime, one ounce of lime. So 
All these girls are trained in the same fashion. You dip the brush, swirl it, use your lips to bring it to a fine point, paint the numbers. Lip, dip, lip, paint. That's how they're trained. Dip, lip, paint. That's the process. So, no one thought anything of it. Radium was known to be hazardous on some level. All right. And, and we know that they knew it was hazardous, not I mean, despite having sold it in capsules and everything, um, because the guys in the labs who did the actual extraction were protected with lead aprons against the beta and gamma rays that were thrown off by radiation. The alpha waves, which are by far the most dangerous of them all, were so weak they were easily stopped by a piece of paper. So they actually weren't worried about the alpha rays, even though that does the most damage, uh, because paper could stop it. No, it can't stop alpha rays. Clothing. And it was believed that because the girls were using such minute amounts of the radium, it wasn't going to be harmful to them because it was just a tiny little amount. They weren't, you know, they, they weren't exposed to the big chunks like the boys were, and so they didn't need the protection. All right, we're supplementing because apparently two limes are not enough. So the only indication that any of them ever had that that dip lip paint could have a detrimental effect was one day when Grace Fryer was steadily at work, USRC plant owner and lead scientist Sabin von Sochaki was walking through the plant and he saw her do that dip lip paint routine. And he said, and this is a direct quote, do not do that, it will make you sick. One comment. No, no posted signs or anything. Half ounce of lemon. I'm just going straight out with the lemon juice on this. I have a fresh lemon, but now I'm like, hmm, that didn't work. We're just going to do the, the real lemon. This will work. I'm not going to beat myself up over this. So one throwaway comment made early on was the only indication they ever had. And Von Soshaki would know. He'd lost his thumb to radium. Uh, a chunk got on his skin and he had to amputate. He was also trained directly by the Curies. So he definitely knew about the hazards of radium. But beyond this one warning during a pass-through at the plant, nothing was ever done to stop the practice. Shake this. Now, among the many perks of working at the plant was a, a pretty solid working wage. A girl could earn a lot of money painting dials. And it doesn't sound like much when you look at it in today's dollars, right? They were paid like 0 0.015 cents per dial, so it's not even quite two cents a dial. Um, but on average, a fast painter could paint about 250 watches per day, and that would be $3.75 per day. You adjust that for inflation, that's $112 per day, or about $670 per week, given the most worked six days per week, which was pretty standard back then. Oh yeah, that is a, that is a green cocktail. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. That is so, so Sounds like small potatoes, right? $670 per week, that's, that's absolute garbage for today. But in the early 1900s, everything was still on the gold standard, so that was a very solid like upper middle class income. You were doing really good at $672 a week. All right, I'm sorry, 100, yeah, 600, yeah, no, 375 per day, excuse me. That's a solid middle class income. And the girls, I mean, they were teenagers. They were young. Most of them still lived at home. They weren't married. So they went out and they bought new clothes and hats. They enjoyed going out dancing. They had socials together. They, you know, met up with their boyfriends and they enjoyed helping their country out, supporting the troops, painting these watch faces. They would, you know, 
carve their names on the backs of the watch and say, you know, this was painted by Grace Fryer at the US, USRC plant or whatever. And they get letters back from these boys saying, thank you very much. I was able to keep track of time. And so they were kind of building this connection and helping out their country. Um, and all the time they glowed. I mean, like literally glowed. That was one of the other perks from working at the plant is that you basically took on this ethereal quality from all the radium because you would glow everywhere you went. You, you know, you'd go out on the town and your whole skin would be glowing literally because you're covered with this fine particulate radium dust. Uh, so in addition to what they're ingesting every day as part of that dip lip paint routine, they're coated in this dust and USRC was kind of cheap about it. They'd actually have the girls like shake out their clothes. So the radium dust could be collected on the, you know, swept up from the floor and reused the next day, uh, which is not at all like radium dial corporation in Ottawa, Illinois, where they encourage the girls to play with it and take it home to practice their technique. And there's anecdotes in that, in the sections on the radium dial corporation about how uh, on their breaks they would go into the dark room and paint each other's faces to see the glow and eat their lunch at their workstations right next to the radium. So, plate of radium here, cocktail right here, and they're just eating and drinking right next to radium. That's not bad. I'm not much of a sour cocktail person, but this one's actually not too bad. I probably should have picked one. The toxic waste candy had like four different flavors and I just went eh and put one of each in there. I probably should have just picked one, but this isn't bad. With the benefit of a hundred years of hindsight and the knowledge that Madame Curie was buried in the lead line casket due to her radioactivity as a result of her work with radium, my eyes were like this the entire time reading this book because you just I just knew nothing good was coming. I remember those alpha particles. The ones where 95% of the danger of radium comes from the alpha particles and they're so weak they can't pass through paper, but they do pass through clothing just fine. And when you are directly ingesting it day after day, eight to 10 hours a day, six to seven days a week, that accumulates pretty quickly in your system. Remember when I said radium let calcium attaches to your bones? Um, most of the girls started feeling it in their bones first. Uh, their feet might hurt a little more than usual. They might have an ache in their back when they probably shouldn't because these are young girls. Uh, the youngest she mentioned was Catherine Schaub, who was just 14 when she started working at USRC. And there is no earthly reason for someone that young to be having foot and back problems. But the first to really fall, at least as chronicled in this book, was Amelia Molly Magia, who had been 19 when she started working at USRC. Now, I, I say it's chronicled in this book because there is always a possibility that somebody else died first and it was just not suspected of being related to the radium, so it was never investigated. Like, maybe her family had some sort of an underlying health history and so the family just never suspected. Uh, no fault of the author, certainly no fault of the family, it's just a possibility. So, Molly Magia, like all the girls, you know, dip lip paint, kept on working at USRC after the war, even though quite a few of her compatriots had left for other employment by that point. I mean, it's fun, but it's factory work, right? Most people then and now seek to get out of that and move into the white collar. And, and so, you know, they would leave and Molly stayed. She just kept doing it. She kept working at USRC. For Molly, it started with fatigue. She just got very tired. Really unusual. Again, she's very young. Started there at 19. She's like 20, 21, 22. Um, and then her, her teeth started aching. So she had this really nasty toothache. So she went to see a dentist because... 
your teeth hurt, you go to the dentist. And she had a tooth extracted, but the hole where her tooth used to be would not heal. It just kept oozing pus. So isn't that a lovely visual? So she went to another dentist for a second opinion, Dr. Joseph Kneff, who treated her for uh, pyoria, which is basically that's that plaque buildup you get along your, your teeth. Well, when that actually starts to affect your teeth, that is called pyoria, and that can cause infections, and she still wasn't healing, and more of her teeth seemed loose. Now, through all of this, she's still working at USRC. She's still dip, lip, paint, even with her sore mouth. And she becomes less social at work because she has a mouthful of pus, which creates bad breath. Who knew, right? And then she starts having aches and pains everywhere. So she's diagnosed with rheumatism. And sometimes when Molly would see Dr. Kneff, her teeth would just fall out in his hand. He'd be like, and they just fall out in his hand. And the doctor at one point thought she might have syphilis. The test came back negative. He asked her what she did for a living, and she said she was a dial painter. So he thought she might have fossy jaw, which is what happens as a result of prolonged exposure to phosphorescent paints. Um, but there was no phosphorescence used at USRC. It was just pure radium. And the company confirmed this and assured Dr. Kneff there was no way her illness was connected to her job at US Radium Corporation. Eventually, Molly had to quit her jaw because of all the pain. She was in too much pain to keep working. Uh, her entire jaw turned into one festering abscess. And in May of 1922, she went to see Dr. Kneff, and he asked her how she was doing, and she kind of indicated the bulk of her pain was in her jaw. And he went to probe her jaw, and a chunk of it just broke off in his hand and just snapped and came out in his hand. Just fell the f*** off. I mean, if... If that doesn't make your butthole pucker, I don't know what will. I mean, horrifying. Uh, it, it was so bizarre. I mean, he had never seen anything like it that he actually kept the chunk of jawbone in an office drawer. And he only realized the radioactive effects later when he went to pull some x-rays out of that drawer. And they had been erased by the radiation emanating from the jawbone. Uh, Molly died in September of 1922 from a hemorrhage. She was 24. 19 when she started. 24 when she was dead less than five years from learning that dip lip paint routine uh, to being marked dead due to complications from syphilis. Um, she, she did not have syphilis. Uh, a second test was, the second test run was a false positive. She was later exhumed and cleared of that shameful prognosis. Uh, shameful for the 1920s. I mean, nowadays you just get a you know course of penicillin. Thank you, Tuskegee gentlemen. Truly, thank you. You were every bit the guinea pig as these poor ladies were. So Molly was the first to fall, but other girls are getting sick. And the illness all followed this sim similar trajectory. All of them lost teeth and jaw bones. They grew sarcomas. Most experienced having a leg actually grow shorter, or shrink, I guess, because it's not growing shorter, it's shrinking. Um, as a result of, of this radium, their bones just started collapsing, essentially. So they developed limps, and not just an orange. The girls in Ottawa, Illinois, they were about six years behind, only because Radium Dial Corporation didn't open until after USRC did. Now, the laws at the time were pretty carefully crafted, and yes, the girls sued. Most notably, and, and the one that was really followed in the book, was Grace Fryer, Catherine Schaub, Quinta Magia McDonald, Albina Magia. Uh, Quinta and Albina were Molly's sisters, and then you had Edna Hussman. And they had an amazing lawyer, uh, Raymond Hurst Berry, who became so proficient at fighting USRC that his final settlement conference with USRC on the last Radian case he worked, um, 
the case is listed in the book, but I don't remember the name off the top of my head. But the company refused to settle unless Barry agreed to be leashed and never sue them again because he was just winning too much. For this case, the, the press was solidly behind the girls. And understand, this came after years of doctor's visits and doctors who were helpful but want to be paid for their time, but the girls can't pay. They're running out of money, and but they're in obvious pain. Doctors have that, that Hippocratic Oath where, you know, they basically they want to help their doctors. Um, so the girls are going bankrupt. Their family's going bankrupt. No lawyer would take the case because nobody had even heard of radium poisoning. Nobody had any idea anything was going on. Um, the closest thing anybody knew about was a, a study that USRC had had. Um, commissioned by uh, doctors, Dr. Drinkers, there was two of them, there was a husband and wife team, both Dr. Drinker, and USRC owned that study, so the Drinkers couldn't publish it, but USRC misrepresented that study severely to the labor commissions in Jersey. It was just, the whole thing was, was very disgusting. I mean, it, it's, it was a grotesque example of corporatism at its absolute worst. I can't call it capitalism because it's not. It's corporatism, and it was disgusting. Ultimately, because of Barry, the company did settle with these five girls. Um, USRC eventually reached a settlement. They paid out $10,000 to each, which is about $208,000 in today's currency, with a pension of $600 per year for life per, per each woman past and future medical expenses and USRC covered all court costs. So this was a huge settlement. That was an enormous victory for these women. And USRC tried to wiggle out of it immediately. I mean, the future medical cost was dependent on the girls being seen regularly by three, a three doctor panel. Uh, one was appointed by USRC, one was chosen by the girls, and then one that was agreed on by both sides. Um, and if at any time two of the three doctors agreed a girl was no longer suffering from radium poisoning, then the medical benefits would stop immediately. And even though USRC managed to sway that third neutral doctor into basically being somebody they handpicked, uh, it shocked the shit out of USRC when month after month, all three doctors kept reporting the girls were truly ill and likely to die at any time as a result of radium poisoning. Uh, even more frustrating for USRC, the not having to worry about bankrupting their families, stress part of illness, lifted enough weight from the girls that they actually started to get a little bit better and just kept living, which was very rude, according to USRC. Not forever, though. So that verdict was handed down in 1928. Grace Fryer died on October 27, 1933, just five years after the verdict. She was 34 years old. Catherine Schaub died February 18, 1933. She was 31. Clinton McDonald died December 7, 1929 at 29 years old. Um, Albina Magia held on for a long time. She died November 17, 1946 at 51. I like to think that URC was particularly outraged at that $600 per year for life pension. And Edna Hussman died March 31, 1939 at 38 years old. Now, even Edna and Albina, who managed to keep plugging on for one to two decades post-verdict, respectively, lived pain-filled lives. Um, their teeth fell out, their jaws disintegrated, sarcomas and bone and joint pain. I think it was Edna who was no longer able to walk because her hips literally locked from the bone damage and she wasn't able to walk. And USRC never admitted that radium had anything to do with it, ever. Now for the Ottawa girls. 
uh, their health fell into a very similar downward spiral. Uh, Illinois and New Jersey, however, have very different laws. And Radium Dial Company, in trying to get ahead of the news stories coming out of New Jersey, started having doctors come in and see the girls at the, in the plant. Radium Dial Company did two things as a result of this. Uh, first off, they never released the results of the medical test to anyone, not even to the girl's attorney under subpoena. Um, they just refused. And that's a situation that would never happen today, but RDC was able to sidestep it with legal maneuverings 100 years ago that, that wouldn't exist today. Um, the second thing they did was to take out full-page ads in the local paper that radium was 100% safe and the girls had been medically tested and were in the pink of health with no ill effects from radium. Now, the girls had no reason to question this. I mean, despite their own failing health and what was happening in New Jersey, they trusted the company, right? The company had been very good to them. The company was bringing in doctors to watch over them. Um, Mary Ellen Ella Cruz is the case that really started the girls thinking that maybe the company wasn't telling the whole truth. She was 24 in August of 1927 when she, for the first time ever, took a sick day. Uh, four years, 25 days a month, eight hours a day, no vacations. She went home on a Friday and never returned. The next day she went to a doctor, so that would be a Saturday, who tried to lance a pimple she had developed on her chin. Uh, nothing came out. So, but the pimple just kept swelling. So nothing's coming out, but it's getting bigger and bigger. It, essentially, it was a sarcoma. She called in on Monday and Tuesday of the next week. By Wednesday, she was admitted to Ottawa City Hospital with septic poisoning on her face. That was August 3rd, 1927. I'm sorry, uh, September 3rd, 1927. By September 4th, she was dead. So her spiral was exactly one week. Um, Catherine Donahue developed a limp in the wake of the USRC news storm and Ella's death. Even though Donahue was willing to keep working, she was fired for her limp because it was bad for company morale. Uh, this was well before the Americans with Disabilities Act, so Catherine had no recourse but to basically just go home. Uh, the only saving grace she had is that she actually owned her house outright. She had inherited it from an uncle, and her husband still had his job at the glass factory. And this allowed them to mortgage their property to help pay Catherine's mounting medical expenses. Her friend, uh, Charlotte Purcell, who had left RDC while, a while before, ended up having an arm amputated, I think it was her left arm, at the shoulder because she had a fast-growing sarcoma. Uh, shortly before they filed suit against RDC, Catherine and Charlotte went to RDC and confronted their shop foreman, Rufus Reed, and asked him for their medical records and asked if he knew that radium poisoning was poisoning them. And Reed said, quote, you look okay to me. I mean, Charlotte with her missing arm, she's got no arm. Catherine can barely walk from this limp that she's developed because her legs shorten. And he says, you look okay to me. Reed was a company man all the way through. Um, in, in Illinois, they were actually not able to sue due to workman's comp laws. At that time, did not have industrial poisoning as an option. So RDC argued and won on the fact that radium was a poison. They later tried to claim it was not a poison <laughs> during subsequent lawsuit, but because poisoning was not covered under workman's comp law, they said it was a poison. And after approaching every attorney they could think of in Ottawa and Chicago, Catherine and her husband, Tom, and it, or it might've been Charlotte, but they, they wrote to Clarence Darrow, who was a renowned attorney at the time, right? And he was known to take hard cases regardless of the ability to pay. Unfortunately, Darrow was 80 years old. He was not in good health, so he had to decline, but 
he referred them to Leonard Grossman, who took the case pro bono. I don't think he ever received payment for that, ever. He did the entire thing for free. And he was an old-school crusader. He took the case because of the horrible injustice that was done to these women. Now i got to let my eyes stop watering. Now, due to a corporate sleight of hand that, again, would never fly in the 21st century, RDC had only $10,000 total that could be used to pay out damages on any lawsuits in Ottawa, ever. Uh, this was because... Um, Following the USRC cases and the very high-profile incident involving a very rich playboy and industrialist called Eben Byers. Byers was injured in 1927, after which his doctors prescribed Radithor, a name-brand radium water, basically, which Byers consumed in the amount of several thousand dollars. And the headline when he died read, quote, The radium water worked fine until his jaw came off. Does that sound familiar? That that jawbone just popping off, right? Uh, Byers died of radium poisoning on March 30th, 1932, and he specifically cited radium as his cause of death. And the radium industry became uninsurable. The only way, at least in Illinois, the only way that RDC could keep operating was to front a $10,000 bond to the Workmen's Comp Board on their own. And then after they did this, RDC pulled up stakes and moved to New York, where the litigants couldn't reach them. Um, the laws back then didn't allow you to sue across state lines in this case. Uh, again, would never fly today. hundred years ago, that's how it was. So Grossman takes the case pro bono and wins. I mean, quite handily. It was no contest because Catherine was very clearly dying. Like, clearly dying. Um, the case was actually not in a court of law. It was before the Illinois Industrial Commission. Uh, because of that, each girl's case had to be heard individually. And Catherine's was heard first, and that's the one that won. And RDC appealed, and it became a race against the clock because Catherine was clearly dying. And because it was not a court, but a workers' panel, if she died before the appeal was settled, her estate would get nothing. The money has to be paid out directly to Catherine. Uh, fortunately, the panel overhearing the appeal recognized the desperation and rendered its verdict in favor of Catherine early. RDC kept appealing, like literally all the way to the Supreme Court. They lost that too and were forced to pay out, but Catherine didn't live to see that. RDC lost every appeal, um, and rightly so. Now, Charlotte's decision to have her arm amputated bought her decades. She, she lived to see her grandchildren born. And that ultimately became the, the, the girl's lasting contribution. Uh, there were massive changes in the law nationwide, so that now corporations are mandated to give you copies of your health records. Right? OSHA was born out of this, I and mean, there's there's some good and some bad with that. I mean, OSHA is no picnic, but you read stories like this, and you can say, okay, I can see where they might serve a function, because I think most companies do tend to want to do good. They want to do right by their people. Not all. Quite clearly, not all. It's, it's disingenuous to say that all companies will always do the right thing, because that's very clearly not true. But when World War II ramped up, and dial painters were again needed, actual protections and protocols were put in place to protect the new dial painters. So, that, I mean, none of, the, none of them had to go through what the radium girls did. And when the Manhattan Project began, there were non-negotiable safety protocols the scientists insisted on as a direct result of what happened to the radium girls. 
And when the Atomic Energy Agency put out a notice that they wanted to test any surviving radium girls and see how long the radioactivity lasted, I think they all stepped up and said yes. And the relatives of those who died agreed to exhumations, not just their daughters, but two children who had died early as a result of proximity. Uh, one of the dial painters they exhumed was a Margaret Peg Looney. Peg had been 24 when she died on August 14, 1929. They exhumed her body in 1978, and she was found to have 19,500 microcuries of radium still in her body. That is more than 1,000 times the safe amount. 50 years after death, she is still highly radioactive. Now... This book was released in 2018, and not too long after that, a movie was made by the same title using some of the same motifs. I think the movie was loosely based on the book. So loosely based that just watching the trailer, I knew this movie was going to piss me off. And not in a, that's so outrageous, how could this happen kind of a way, but more in a way to shit on the memories of the women who actually lived this kind of way. And they got the last name of the head lawyer right. right they got Mr. Barry. Uh, the company doctor for USRC, Dr. Flint, and the company owner, Arthur uh, Rader. Although I think Rader, I think they conglomerated him. I think Rader was the, the owner of Radium Dial Company. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. He was USRC. Uh, Dr. Martland. He was a New Jersey medical examiner who figured out the connection between the radium and illnesses and also how to test for radium poisoning, both when they're alive and when they're dead. Brilliant man. Um, Dr. Catherine Rinker, they, they mentioned her, although her husband was suspiciously absent in the movie. They didn't bring him up at all. But the women who suffered under this are nowhere in the movie. Uh, the lead character in the movie was Bessie Cavallos, who wanted to be an actress. Because, of course. Right? In Hollywood land, there's nothing more tragic than an actress not getting to act. Um, the the real-life tragedy of women who wanted nothing more than to be a wife and mother, experience multiple, experiencing multiple miscarriages before having to a complete hysterectomy due to radium-induced cancer of the uterus, it's not tragic in Hollywood. Uh, Catherine Donahue, who had been receiving treatment for pernicious anemia, which she developed as a result of her exposure to radium, had to stop all treatment when she found out she was pregnant, thus accelerating her decline. That's not tragic enough for Hollywood. Going to Hollywood, why, why did she just get an abortion? Well, because she was Catholic, all right? And she was very close to God. God and her family were her only solace throughout this entire ordeal. Not having the baby was not an option. Uh, that child being born mostly healthy but failing to thrive, she only weighed 10 pounds at one year old. That's not tragic to Hollywood. But the actress, oh no, she was cut short. <laughs> you, Hollywood. And Hollywood really leaned on that misdiagnosis of syphilis that Molly had, basically showing Dr. Flint diagnosing all the girls with syphilis. That never happened. There was one misdiagnosis, but beyond that, nobody knew what was going on with the girls. Uh, I mean, the, okay, there were multiple misdiagnoses. Uh, multiple causes of death were listed on incorrectly on death certificates, but there was only one instance of it being mislabeled as syphilis. All right, the others were you know complications due to diphtheria or something else, and it was always radium related, which they discovered after the fact. But they really leaned on that syphilis thing really hard. Lean on that one. 
they leaned on Dr. Flint not being a medical doctor, which is actually true. He was not a medical doctor. He had a PhD in industrial hygiene. Big difference. Um, the, the women's attorney, Barry, in reality, filed the complaint with New Jersey Medical Board against him for practicing medicine without a license. Uh, New Jersey didn't care. He wasn't a medical doctor, but he did have a PhD, so the doctor title was not necessarily inaccurate, just entirely misleading. So the real tragedies of the day are math behind Hollywood bullshit, where they try to paint the Communist Party as the real heroes who pointed the way to the Consumer League who put the girls in touch with the doctors. Because the reality of the girls finding the doctors on their own, doing their own legwork, finding their own attorney, that sort of search for justice is not to be mentioned in Hollywood unless it's in context where only communism can save us all from rampant consumerism and greedy capitalists. For reasons why that is wrong, see my reviews on, you know, Mao's Great Famine and the Gulag Archipelago. I'll include links to those in the description. Uh, the movie sucked. I, like, there are not enough words to accurately express how disgusted I was with Hollywood's bullshit slinging on the glories of communism and how evil America is. I mean, I'm, like, so glad I rented it instead of actually buying this crap. Like, don't watch the movie, right? The movie was awful. They even had their token black people in there because they, some casting director had to check off a you know, die box somewhere, all right? It's just absurd. Now, in reality, I mean, the book had villains. Quite clearly, there were villains. Dr. Flint is a villain. USRC is a villain. RDC is a villain. Uh, it had its heroes and its heroines. And then the everlasting tragedy that results when corporations put profit before people. And that, that is unquestionably what happened. I mean, you know I'm an anarcho-capitalist, but stories like this, I mean, I get it. This is why communism keeps rearing its ugly head. And why this story was just ripe for such overt propaganda by Hollywood. And this corporatism, this is what happens when corporations use their power to buy politicians and push through slick laws that protect themselves. I mean, the book was excellent. It was such a fast read. I'd set myself a goal of reading 50 pages a day, and before I knew it, I read through 100. And it was tragic. It was so tragic. I mean, just the, the lives that were cut short and the horrifying agony and disfigurement that these beautiful women went through. I mean, oh, the movie is like, oh, well, at some point she's going to have to have a surgery to remove her jawbone. That is not what happened. The jawbone just fell out. Just fell out. Kath and Donahue would be talking to somebody. She'd be talking to her, her lawyer in her home and she'd reach into her mouth and rip out a piece of jawbone because it just fell off. There was no surgery for that. It just fell off. My asshole is still peppering over that one. I mean, how horrifying. Man. But their legacy, it is unquestionably one of righteousness and hope for the future. And I highly recommend this book. Skip the movie. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your money. It was horrible. I think I actually saw my brain at one point from how hard my eyes rolled. I woke up with a headache this morning from my eyes still rolling. That's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And I will see you guys later. Bye.